why is nobody asking why I'm bipolar? And I, I got seriously pissed off and I fired everybody. And I said, I am going to find out why I have bipolar. And then I'm going to figure out what I have to do to stop having bipolar. Welcome to the Silent Superheroes Podcast, a series of frank conversations about mental health at work. That was Carrie, talking about the moment she decided to see if there was a cause for her bipolar too. Carrie, like me, is from the United Kingdom and unlike me, started her career as a pastry chef. 30 years later, she's a leader in the ketogenic diet scene and the author of five popular keto cookbooks, including books on crockpot meals, soup, and even ice cream. In between pastries and keto, Carrie spent nearly two decades in the grind of corporate America, and it was there she discovered she had bipolar too. Dissatisfied with her treatment options, she set off in search of her own solution, in this episode of Silent Superheroes, Carrie will talk about her early life living misdiagnosed with depression. She'll share her experience of being handcuffed and sent to hospital for considering suicide. And finally, she'll explain the lifestyle changes she's made based on researching her genetics and changing her diet, changes that have led her to many years of bipolar-free living. Remember, hang on, stop. At this point, I always remind you to check with a medical professional before making changes to your treatment. This time... It's really important. Carrie is going to share some ideas about treating bipolar that currently exist outside of the mainstream. If you're curious about following her path, she tells you in this episode to do it with medical support. I'm telling you to do it with medical support. Mental health conditions, particularly bipolar, should not be messed with. It can take a long time to get into a stable state and a very short time to get knocked out of it. Summary, if you want to experiment with Carrie's ideas, talk to your doctor first. My name's James Pratt. I'm the host of Silent Superheroes, and I'm really glad that you're here. Welcome to Silent Superheroes. I'm here with today's guest, Carrie. Carrie, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you? I am very well. I really appreciate you asking. It's a bright, sunny uh, fall morning here up in uh, Pacific Northwest. How is it where you are? It's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. I'm in the middle of nowhere, Connecticut. I live in a little village in a forest, and um, it's gorgeous. It sounds delightful. So, Carrie, why don't you tell us uh, who are you and what do you do? I was raised in England, and I'm actually a trained pastry chef by trade, although I haven't done that uh, for a very, very long time. And I switch tracks, and what I do now is I develop recipes for low-carb and ketogenic lifestyles. So I publish cookbooks. I have five out right now, all designed for to help people who are on a ketogenic diet. And I also run an eight-week keto coaching program and you know, Facebook groups and all of that. And then I also speak on bipolar, mental health and a ketogenic diet. Your journey sounds like a straight line between pastry chef in the food industry and, you know, now being a leader in the world of ketogenic diets. But it wasn't quite a straight line between those two things. 
there's nothing in my life has ever been a straight line. <laughs> Most of my time in the US, I actually worked in corporate America for Microsoft. I worked for Microsoft for 17 years. However, when I was at Microsoft, I'd for the last seven to eight years, I was working on my cookbooks and developing recipes alongside my day job in the tech world. How did you come to find and get involved with the ketogenic scene? So I have been depressed my whole life. I was born depressed. In 2013, I actually had a full mental break, which landed me in the ER. So that was actually when I discovered that I had bipolar 2 disorder. The whole of my life I'd been depressed, but I'd only ever been treated for unipolar depression up to that point, and it was never successful. So I'd kind of got to the point where there was no way that I could do anything to make that part of my life better or different, and I was just going to have to learn how to drag my ass through life with it. I had been following a low-carb diet for quite a few years, but I found, although it was very good for my overall health, it didn't have any effect on the, 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 the bipolar part of me. And it was when I met uh, Dr. Naiman, I actually bumped into him on Twitter and we started talking and he said that he thought he could help me with my bipolar. So he was the doctor that actually put me on a ketogenic diet. And that was four and a half years ago. So the depression you said showed up very young. I mean, you, you said I was born depressed. I don't know if that's a, you know, kind of a tongue in cheek joke or, you know, you feel like that was your experience from your first memories. Yeah, no, I never. And of course, when, when you're, when you're tiny, when you're, you know, four years old, you don't have a name for it. You don't understand what's happening. You just know that nothing feels good and Part of the reason you know that is because everybody tells you that you're a pain. Everybody tells you to smile. Everybody tell like, you know that you're not good enough. You know that you're not doing things right. You know that you're not supposed to feel the way you feel, but you don't know why because that's all you've ever experienced. So you, you're sitting there thinking, I've always been like this. This is me. This is normal. And the world is telling you, you're grumpy, you're, you never smile, like what's wrong with you, why do you behave badly? So I knew at a very young age that, that something wasn't quite right, but I didn't have a name for it. And I didn't understand that, that I wasn't just broken. I, I grew up thinking that I was broken to the point where I was not good enough and I would never be able to get it right because try as I might to please my parents and, and other people around me, I could just never do it. And and no matter how I tried, there was always this like this cloud over my head. And I never I never remember feeling joy. I, I never remember feeling that ever. And so that's that's why I say I was born depressed because that that was what life felt like to me. At what point then was it that 
you started to understand that those feelings you were having were depression? So I started going to uh, South Bank University. I studied at the National Bakery School, which was part of South Bank University up in London. And for my last year there, I actually did years three and four concurrently because I was very bored with school and I was doing exceptionally well. And I just didn't want to spend another two years at school. So I did both of those last years, three and four of university, I did at the same time. And because of that workload, I actually moved out of my family home. I stopped commuting up to London every day and I moved into a hall of residence. So that was when I first moved out and was living on my own. And that was the point at which I realized that maybe what I was feeling was 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 something that was external. It wasn't just that I was broken, that maybe there was something that was fixable and that maybe it wasn't right that I felt that way. And so that was the first time I actually sought out therapy. So the university had counselors on hand and I started going to see one. And that kind of started this what's been an almost lifelong quest to to try and stop the depression. What I discovered along the way was that I, this is how I describe it. There's, there's two types of depression. There's situational depression, which is your dog died. You're, you're, you know, you broke your leg and you can't walk for six weeks. You lost your job. You, your, your grandmother passed away. Things that happen that would make you sad. And then there's clinical depression, which is not caused by anything. It's just how your brain works. So I started after going into counseling for the first time when I was living up in London at university. I that was when I first started to realize that you cannot talk your way out of a clinical depression. Talking helps you out of a situational depression. You just cannot talk your way out of a clinical depression any more than you can talk yourself out of a broken leg or diabetes. It's just, it's, it's a fundamental misfiring. It just, you, your body just doesn't work in a way that you can change by talking. So let's, let's take some steps forward then. So you were diagnosed with unipolar depression at university and then, you know, presumably you entered the, the workforce and at some point sounds like your unipolar depression got to a point where you started taking medication. So just walk us through that part of the journey. There were times where the depression got to the point where I felt like I have to do something that's going to change it and and talk therapy isn't working and you know reading all the self-help books isn't working and and the exercise all the things you do all the things that they tell you online that will help your depression and none of them worked very well and so every now and then I would get to the point where I'd be I've got to get I've got to take medication. I've always been against medication. That's just kind of who I am. I, I just don't want to put anything in my body. I think it's a British thing. Like, yeah. why take a paracetamol when you've got a cold? Like, just tough through it. Right. 
<laughs> That's definitely part of it. Stiff upper lip and all that. But there were points where I thought I was losing my mind. And so I'm like, okay, I'm just going to have to suck it up and go to the doctor and, and get some antidepressants. And I was never diagnosed with bipolar. So I, they would put me on antidepressants. They would maybe work a little bit or not work. And then after a while, I'd get fed up of taking them or I wouldn't see the results. And so I'd stop taking them. When you say losing your mind, what is that experience for you? Like, What was it told you that you might be losing your mind? So I think the first time that it was almost unbearable was I was actually living in the States. This was about 14 years ago, if my memory serves me correctly. And I had been, my depression had got really bad. And so I, that was one of the times where I'm like, okay, I'm just going to go to the doctor and get something. So I went to the doctor. They put me on an antidepressant. I don't remember which one. I lost 20 pounds. That was awesome. I became violent. That was not awesome. Not awesome, no. I, I've started, and I'm not a violent person. I was, uh, I was throwing coffee tables across the room. I was whacking people on the nose. Very luckily for me, especially living in America, the, the person who I assaulted realized that it was the medication and not me and didn't press charges. But I could so easily have found myself on a felony assault charge because of a medication. So the first one did not go well. And as a result of that, I ended up, I actually called the police and said, if you don't come and get me, I'm either going to to harm myself or I'm going to harm someone else. And so that ended up as a seven-day stay in the in a psych ward. But then I came out and nothing had really changed. And so they tried me on another antidepressant and then another one. One of them made me suicidal. I did stop being violent, though, so that was cool. You could argue that suicide is kind of a fairly severe act of self-violence. Right. But it's inward. I, I wasn't being outwardly violent anymore. I wasn't smacking people. I wasn't throwing furniture. Um, they put me on a bunch of others. They all had horrible side effects and none of them worked. Then I think the fifth one they put me on, they thought they'd try me on one of the really, really old tricyclic. And they gave me that. And I did not sleep for six weeks. What? I mean, it was otherworldly. I would go to bed, I would lay awake all night, I would get up, I would be exhausted, I, I, I could not sleep. And I was also having 24 by 7 panic attacks. It was absolutely crazy making. So at the end of that six weeks, I literally thought, I've lost my mind. So I made the decision um, just to come off everything. And... Um, at least got my sleep back, but and, and the panic attacks subsided, but I still had the depression. So I just decided at the end of that, that year of antidepressants that I was just going to have to fake my way through life. I was going to have to be depressed out loud when I was home alone, or I was going to have to literally fake my way through the bits where I was with other people when I was at work, when I was, you know, doing things out and about. And so that's what my life became. So through this whole period where you were taking uh, all these different 
medication for depression, like what were you doing? What work were you doing? And how was all this being up for six weeks straight affecting the work that you were doing? So at the time I was self-employed and I was actually, it, it, but it was a sales role. I was, it was kind I was dabbling in the food world. I was actually selling chocolate, but I was selling European chocolate, but I was selling it to businesses. So it wasn't a retail business. It was a, a business to business venture. So I think that's, that's the only reason I was able to make it all work was that when there were days when I literally couldn't, I didn't, I, I was kind of under the radar and that's what made it possible for me to get through. But the downside was, I mean, I was barely able to make enough money to eat. I mean, I was just about covering the bills. It's that idea of presenteeism, isn't it? Like for most businesses, as long as you are physically in the office and you appear to be working, like to some extent, that's all many businesses care about, which is just so sad because you could show up on one of those days that in your own business, you know, you would have just, just not worked and pretend to work all day, but you're getting nothing done. And it's probably going to take you longer to kind of recover and, and come out of this, you know, this patch, right? So you go from having your own business, this kind of year of hell, then you decide that you're going to live with the depression and just figure out how to make it work. So kind of what happened in your work as you took that decision? How did work change for you? So shortly after I decided to come off all the antidepressants, um, I also realized that, that I was probably going to have to get a day job because of I'd been self-employed for four four years at that point, and because of the depression, I, I, I kind of it was working, it was paying the bills, but no more than that. So I wasn't actually moving forward. So I decided that I was going to have to get a day job. At the same time, my former employee, Microsoft, uh, called me up and said, "Where are you? We need you." And, and I worked at Microsoft for, for all of those years. And in 2013, March 2013, was when I actually had my mental break. So it was seven years of working at Microsoft, being depressed at home out loud, faking it, you know, being like a performing seal at SeaWorld during the day. Um, doing what I had to do so strongly, I have to say. Anyway, so I did that for seven years and then apparently my brain was like, we just, we we can't. I think I just got to the point where I had just physically, mentally, emotionally had enough. And I remember having a conversation with my therapist. I was at the office. I was working ridiculous hours. I hadn't slept in two days. I hadn't eaten in two days. And I'd worked 36 out of the previous 48 hours. And I remember it was a Thursday and I called my therapist and left a voicemail. He called me back. I was sitting in the office 
and he called me back and I just, I remember saying to him, I'm done. I, I just, I can't do this anymore. I, this is, it's never going to end. This is what my life looks like. I'm exhausted in every way you can imagine. And I just cannot do this anymore. I'm done. And he realized that I was serious, that I was planning on going home and just calling it a day. Then I drove home. And as I was driving down the hill to my house, I saw a police SUV coming towards me. And I was like, uh, we never have police down this end of the neighborhood. And I was like, my therapist called the police. And so I sped down and, a, you know, remote garage lid comes up. I drive in and I push that button to get the garage down because he's following me by this point. And um, the door was about two feet from closing and he leapt out of his car and slid under the garage door, no. which, of course, made it go back up again. So like there I am, Indiana Jones kind of thing, right? right? Proper Indiana Jones thing. So it was very dramatic. He came to my car, and I was pissed off because I'm like, "Hello, I had a plan. Like, go away. You're not part of it." We went in the house. Um, he said, "You know, uh, your therapist called us, and we're worried about you." I was, I, I, I was very, very pissed off. But things started to go really sideways when I needed to go upstairs to pee. So um, belligerent Carrie kind of arrived on the scene and I tried to go upstairs again and he got, he got arsy and so then the handcuffs came out. So then I'm handcuffed and then it all deteriorated from there. Once the handcuffs went on, they're not coming off unless you're going somewhere. A bunch of cops showed up, the medics showed up, I was handcuffed to a gurney, put in the back of the, the ambulance and I was taken off to the ER. So I show up at the host, at the ER, armed guard, because as I said, it's illegal to commit suicide in Washington state. So armed guard in a room, a glass room, I'm handcuffed to the bed. It was, and, and I'm there and I have no one. Nobody knows I'm there. I have no ability to contact anybody. I am just there alone suicidal, restrained, and my situation was desperate. I was there for nine hours. It was, without a doubt, the worst nine hours of my life. And if, if I'm making this sound dramatic, it was dramatic. And I want people to understand what it's like to find yourself in that situation. And because I'm single and because no one knew I was there, and because of the way the laws work, at least in Washington state, I could have literally disappeared for 14 days. I wouldn't have shown up to my job. I mean, my life seriously would have been flushed down the toilet if they'd committed me. So I had to get myself out of that hospital. And so the assessor came and she was a lovely lady. And I managed to persuade her that I was okay. And that I really did love my therapist and I was going to be all right. So she decided not to commit me. Thank goodness. But there were conditions on her letting me leave. They called my therapist. Um, they told him that I was required to get a psychiatric evaluation and that I had to stay in psychotherapy with him. And I also, he had 
uh, an emergency contact. And there were very various other conditions, but the big one being the psychiatric evaluation. So of course I agreed to all this and my therapist agreed and and I got out of that situation. Then of course you get on the merry-go-round, which is the the inner workings of mental health. And so there followed this kind of crazy round of psychiatrists. That's when I was diagnosed with bipolar 2 disorder, which made a lot of my life to that point make sense because that's when I discovered that if you put a bipolar person on unipolar uh, antidepressants, nothing good comes of that. And I had experienced that um, throughout my life because the antidepressants either didn't work or gave me horrible side effects or both. I was just going to say, and it's with bipolar two, you tend much more towards depression than you do towards mania. Like you only get a kind of a milder form of mania. So I think it's quite difficult to diagnose because it looks like depression unless someone's really looking for those like hypermanic or the evidence of hypermanic behavior. Hypermania showed up in a, my therapist would disagree, but from my perspective, my hypermania showed up in a really good way. Like I wrote a cookbook in five weeks while still doing a day job. (laughs) Like I didn't take five weeks off and write it, but even then that would be ridiculous. So I could write a cookbook in five weeks. I became hyper-focused. I didn't need any sleep. I became, I turned into superwoman in a good positive way from my perspective. I'm, I'm still sad that I've lost some of that. (laughs) I'm still sad that it takes me longer to write a cookbook now. But but at the time, I think you're right in that that's why the bipolar was never really picked up because my hypermania showed up in such a positive way. And, and I never talked to anybody about it because I didn't think that that was a bad symptom. I never even noticed that that it was a thing. I mean, who who would think that writing a cookbook in five weeks was a bad symptom? That sounds great. Right. And, and, and in the world that we live now, you know, that would be just like a heroic, superhuman, wow, you're amazing kind of thing, not something that should be like, hmm, that's not normal. Maybe we should look at that. So, but but the, the bipolar 2 diagnosis was useful in that it made sense of the rest of my life in terms of why the the antidepressants didn't work. The downside was that they then started the the merry-go-round of, well, we have to give you drugs now. When I do talks about my bipolar, my analogy is I was in this game of pin the tail on the donkey, and and I was the donkey, but it wasn't fun. Right. And, and so that's, and it's not just finding like the place, it's like almost finding the length of the tail as well. Cause it's like, oh, this drug kind of works for you, but like it's not working enough. So we'll like up the dosage a little bit, but then that's throwing something else. So we'll drop that down. Then we'll try this other thing. And like it's a real puzzle. Right. And then of course, there's the side effects as well, which are varied and great. So, and I actually said this to my psychiatrist. He's like, you don't actually know what you're doing, do you? He said, no, we don't. But this is how the system works. And this is what we're trained to do. So this is what we do. They eventually found a drug that kept me stable enough so I could function, so that I could go back to being a performing seal at work and and getting through. However, nine months after my break, I became suicidal again. 
despite the medication, I took a three-month leave of absence from work. I was still seeing my psychiatrist every week, 300 bucks for half an hour every week because that was required. I was still doing that, but it got to the point where I would, I'm a thinker, so I would think about stuff and I'd go in and I'd go, hey, I'm, I was thinking about this. What, about, what do you think about that idea? And he'd go, that's a great idea. Let's try that. And then I'd go back the next week and I'd say, hey, I was thinking about this. What do you think about that? And he'd go, that's a great idea. Let's do that. And so after a few weeks of this, I was like, this is bullshit. Like, like I'm paying you $300 a week so that you can tell me I have great ideas. Like what? So I fired him. And I decided that I was going to stop all my medication because I was suicidal with it. It, you know, I would rather be suicidal without the drugs with the, with the side effects than with the drugs if the result was going to be the same. And after another three months of being 24 by 7 suicidal, I was kind of at the end of my rope and I was like, I have to do something. So I went to a new doctor who put me on Lamotrigine. And that was like somebody switched a light bulb on in my life. After three days, I felt joy for probably the first time in my life. So I go on Lamotrigine, literally, it was like a black and white world was suddenly technicolor. And for six months, I had what I would imagine would be considered a fairly normal life. I felt joy. I got up, I went out and did stuff I loved. I, it, it, was, it was magical. I'd like to take a moment to address any uh, sort of uh, psychiatrist who might be listening to this. I'll save you some time from like the small sample size I have of talking to people with bipolar too, just to start with Lamotrigine. I think it's worked for just about everybody I've talked to, maybe except for one person. So I, I, I don't know why people don't just start there. It seems to work. So It worked for me for six months. And then six months in, I became suicidal. Their response to that was to double the dose of Lamotrigine. And the lights came back on and life was awesome again for six months. And then after another six months, I became suicidal. They wanted to double it again. And that was at the point at which I really called bullshit. And I said, I cannot spend the rest of my life wondering when it is that these are going to stop working. I'm going to become suicidal. But also, why is nobody asking why I'm bipolar? And I got seriously pissed off and I fired everybody. And I said, I am going to find out why I have bipolar. And then I'm going to figure out what I have to do to stop having bipolar. From here, your journey goes into exploring and trying to understand why you have bipolar. So walk us through that journey. So the first thing I did when I started thinking about solving the riddle of why I had bipolar, I started to think about what it might be. Uh, my father was manic depressive, so I grew up with that. And I was like, so is it genetic or is it environmental? Is it watching that behavior that somehow 
like done something weird to me. Is it and manic depressive? Is bipolar for those right. who don't know? That was England. I'm not sure when England switched over to calling it bipolar, but it was known back then as as manic depression. He was never diagnosed with manic depression, but now looking back, it was as plain as the nose on my face that that's what it was. Um, was it environmental? Was it food? Was it there? Were there's just all these things. Why would it be that I'm bipolar? So I decided that the thing that had the least variables or the, the, the one constant in all of those variables was genetics because your genetics are what they are. So I decided that I was going to start there and I spat in a tube and sent it off to 23andMe and, and got my, my DNA file back. And at the same time, I had a huge number of blood tests done, food sensitivity tests, like what's in your blood that shouldn't be, what's not in your blood that should be, like levels of vitamins and minerals. Oh, I can say vitamins. You're British. Um, um, Levels of all the things, toxins, like everything. I had like every blood test known measuring everything. And I, I sent off for all that. In the, in the meantime was when I bumped into Dr. Ted Naiman on Twitter. And so there was all that going on, which I was doing on my own. And then I bumped into Dr. Naiman and he said, I think I can help you with your bipolar. I'd actually asked him if he knew anything about DNA. And he said, not, not a ton, but he would try and help me look at my report and why was I doing what I was doing. So I said, you know, I have bipolar 2 disorder and I'm trying to figure out why and and fix it and he was actually the one that that said to me i want you to eat a ketogenic diet and his reasoning was that the ketogenic diet was originally developed for treating children with epilepsy and seizures and it was incredibly successful at either minimizing or reducing seizures in in children or eliminating them altogether so Lamotrigine is an anti-seizure medication, and that had worked for me. So we put me on a ketogenic diet, and that was mid-July 2015. Then I got my DNA back, and I started deciphering that. I discovered, the big thing I discovered was that I have a genetic mutation known as MTHFR, which I have determined is a particularly fine name because MTHFR, it's the motherfucker gene. And I started researching on MTHFR and I discovered that this this mutation has the potential to cause an unbelievably long and torrid list of symptoms and mental health issues are all over the place with MTHFR. It's implicated in all sorts of things. So I found that out. I also found out that my serotonin and dopamine receptors genetically were broken in about 40 different places. So and of course, serotonin and dopamine are responsible for mood balance. I also discovered that I have a genetic intolerance to gluten, although I'm not celiac. I have now found out that gluten can affect you in seven different ways, not just the one that the regular medical profession will tell you. If you're gluten intolerant, then you're celiac. And if you're not celiac, then you're fine with gluten, which is not true. Um, So gluten had actually been attacking my brain 
I also discovered, mostly because of the MTHFR, that I have a very much harder time detoxing my body because of that mutation. So normal things that are toxic to our systems, people without that mutation can detox them. We have a liver. That's what it does. It cleans stuff. My liver isn't very good at that because of this mutation. And so my body was also incredibly toxic in all sorts of things. So if you add all those things up, it was really no surprise that at some time and in some way, my brain was going to go sideways. And, and it did. And in my case, it showed up as bipolar 2 disorder. One of the things that the mutation means is that I cannot methylate very well. Methylation, there's lots of processes that occur in our body that require something called methylation. One of those things is B vitamins. If you take B vitamins, oh, vitamins, if you take B vitamins, our body has to methylate them for us to be able to use them. Well, if you're like me and you can't methylate very well, that means that no matter how many B vitamins you eat, your actually body is not being nourished by them. So I had had this lifelong deficiency in B vitamins. And why that's important is because the number one role of B vitamins is neurotransmitter health. And actually, when I got all the blood tests back, all, I had nothing. Like I had a severe deficiency in all the B vitamins. So the blood tests actually corroborated what the MTHR suggested that was a problem. And so, as I say, if you add all of that together, it's really no surprise. My brain was going to go sideways at some point. So I found a naturopath and I took all of the test results and, and all of that with me. We found out I also had, I was sensitive to so many foods, it was ridiculous. So we, we took all the foods that I could still eat and we layered the ketogenic diet over the top of that, which is for people who don't know what a ketogenic diet is, it's basically absence of carbs. And depending on why you're doing it, um, various ratios of protein and fat. Because the, the, the idea is to force your body to produce ketones on which you run rather than running on glucose for energy, you use ketones for energy. And the absence of eating carbohydrate forces your body to become a fat burner, not a glucose burner. And it, it also, it, brain, it bathes your brain in healthy fats and ketones, which is what the folks with seizures find so healing. That's why it works so well for children with seizures. So we, we took all my food sensitivities. We layered ketogenic foods over the top of that, which left me nine things I could eat. And I ate nine things for three months. And, and we also, my naturopath put me on methylated B vitamins. So you can actually get B vitamins that are pre-methylated so our body doesn't have to do it. So I went on a ketogenic diet mid-July 2015. I saw my naturopath with all the test results on September 4th, 2015. Six weeks after that, so mid-October 2015, Dr. Naaman said, "We, you can come off your Lamotrigine. And I was terrified of that because, you know, in, in the past, 
if I'd, if I'd run out, I would become suicidal very quickly. So he said, you can go cold turkey, but if you don't want to, I get it. So we kind of titrated me off it. We half dosed it over a couple of weeks. And then I came off the Lamotrigine altogether. And I have been completely unmedicated for so just over four years now. And I have also been free of all symptoms of bipolar 2 for the same time. I'm kind of bummed that it took me so long. You know, the experience we have makes us who we are. And maybe if my journey hadn't been so dramatic and maybe if bits of it hadn't have happened, I wouldn't be able to stand up and talk about it and hopefully give other people hope and and kind of, you know, rant and rave about how we need to to look at mental health differently. You know, obviously you had been diagnosed with a with an illness and the kind of typical approach wasn't working well for you. And you went off on a journey where you tried to piece together like what are the things in my physiology, my biology that are kind of off and kind of aren't right. And then try to find ways to put those things kind of back in place and to kind of you know, heal or um, whatever it might be. And so, you know, with your met- methylated B vitamins or with your ketogenic diet to try and kind of get your body back to to where you know, typically it should be. Why is it, do you think, that that doesn't happen more often in medicine, particularly around mental health? Doctors are not trained in nutrition. In, in, in all of their training, they might talk about nutrition for a day. Their training was, if someone has this symptom, this is the drug you, of choice. That's what they're trained to do. They're trained to treat symptoms. They're not trained to dig for root cause and stop the problem. They're trained to treat sy- symptoms. And so that's not, you know, I'm not being rude to the doctors. I'm being rude to the system that trains them inadequately and trains them to salt, to medicate symptoms instead of training them to find out the root cause and stop the symptoms, not mask the symptoms. Somebody, you know, with bipolar listening to this, you know, you may have piqued their, um, their interest. So I think the first question uh, would be, where should somebody go to learn more about this approach to, you know, I'm going to say helping with bipolar? The first thing I would say is bipolar is not a thing. It's just a name they've given to a collection of symptoms. So that's, I think, quite a different way of looking at it. I would also say that absolutely I am not saying that everyone with bipolar 2 disorder is going to be able to take methylated B vitamins and be cured. I don't think that's the case at all. I think mental health issues come from a variety of different root causes one of which is absolutely this motherfucker gene. I would recommend anybody that has a mental health issue and anybody that has weird things that the medical profession don't know what to do with, like psoriasis and eczema and migraines and IBS and all of that kind of weird stuff that they don't know what to do with. I have all of those or used to have all of those. If you have those and or you have mental health issues, I cannot recommend highly enough you getting your DNA and finding a functional medicine doctor or a naturopath who can help you understand the results because 
it may be as simple as the methylated bees. It might not. But I think anybody who has those kind of mystery things and mental health, I think the MTHFR mutation is is a brilliant first place to look. However, just because you have the MTHFR mutation does not mean you need to do anything about it. You only have to worry about having the mutation if you have symptoms. If if you have symptoms and you just want to skip all of that and just go to taking methylated B vitamins, I really don't recommend that at all. And here's why. People with MTHFR, everybody's needs for methylated B vitamins is going to vary. And even for me now, my needs vary. So in winter, I find I need to take more. When I'm stressed, I find I need to take more. In the summer, I need to take less. That's something you need to work out how much you need to take with someone who is who knows about this stuff. So get yourself a functional medicine doctor who knows about it and have them help you figure out what that dose should be and then how to manage it going forward. I think what I've heard is show some curiosity, be willing to, you know, kind of gather some data, gather some information, find people who can support you on your journey, who maybe know more about, you know, whether it's methylated B vitamins or or something else. And I think, you know, like with anything like that, be willing to, for it not to work, right? Um, which, you know, may be true for, for many people. Gary, I want to say thank you so much um, for a couple of things. I think one, um, coming on the show, of course, and then two, I think for the, you know, the work that you're doing in this you know, area and field, like some of these things you're doing feel very nascent, but hopefully if it works for you and it works for some other people, I think you made a big, a big difference in the world. So thank you. I, you know, e- even if just one person doesn't die as a result, then, then it will all, all be worth it to me. And I mean, I'm in a very lucky situation in that I do not have a day job. So I don't have to worry about talking out loud about mental health because nobody can fire me. I also don't have any family. So I'm, you know, talking out loud to family about mental health issues can be just as catastrophic as talking to your employer. Um, So I'm very lucky that I can talk out loud on their behalf because they can't, then I'm more than happy to do that. And that's why I do what I do. Well, thank you for that. And thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. That's Carrie's story. And what a story it was. I think there are three stages of having a mental illness. The first is being unaware, where you have symptoms, but don't really see them as a problem or aren't willing to do anything about them. The second stage is resistance. In resistance, you've been told that you have a mental illness, but don't really want to accept that you do, perhaps resisting treatment options and ignoring advice you've been given. Then there's acceptance, where you come around to the idea that you're bipolar and decide to learn more about it and take it seriously. Carrie has found a fourth stage, curiosity. When you're curious, you start asking questions and experiment with new ideas. You start learning that bipolar isn't a monolith and that there are different types. You start deepening your awareness of triggers and build strategies to manage them. Carrie started exploring her genetics and her physiology to see if she could get her body into a healthy state at the very micro level. There's a term in the technology community called the early adopter. These are the people who buy new products in new categories first. They're your friend who had a Blu-ray player or a VR headset first. There's also a smaller, less well-known group called the innovators. 
These are people who buy products before they're really established as a, as a category or consumer ready. They'll put up with things that aren't polished or just outright bad because they care about the potential for where these things can go. In the world of figuring out the why for bipolar and treating it with surgical precision, Carrie is truly an innovator. So let's thank her for doing the work at the very cutting edge to figure out how we could all live better with bipolar. I mentioned at the start, but let's cover it again. What Carrie is doing isn't mainstream medicine yet. If you're interested in learning more about her approach, you can visit her website, carriebrown.com, and search for bipolar. And after you're done reading her very detailed protocol, print it out and review it with your medical provider before you make any changes so you can stay safe and healthy. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a rating or a review on iTunes or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. To be honest, I don't think I've seen a new review or a rating for a while, so I'd really appreciate it if you could take a few minutes to do that. If you want to hear about new episodes as they come out, you can follow us at facebook.com forward slash silent superheroes or sign up for our newsletter at silentsuperheroes.com. Take your mental health seriously. If you need to speak to someone, you can call 1-800-273-8255 or text crisistextline.org at 741-741. Both provide 24-7 confidential counseling to people in the United States. Worldwide, visit iasp.info slash resources slash crisis underscore centers slash to help others find the silent superheroes podcast please leave a review on itunes or your favorite podcasting service